0: Hello and welcome to another ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier and it is another packed show this week full of highs and lows both on and off the court. We have two Dominics, Team and Kupfer, and the recent giant killing Spaniard Pablo Andujar. But we start with the man he beat and there is arguably no bigger name in the game of tennis. It wasn't quite the fairy tale comeback in Geneva this week, losing in the early rounds, but... Nonetheless, if the past year has taught Roger Federer anything, it's to take things one step at a time. Before the tournament, we caught up with the Swiss great about a whole host of things, but starting with his comeback from injury.
1: It's been a long year uh, in some ways, especially rehabbing, being on crutches once and then for a second time. I didn't expect it to go as long as it did, but it did. Um, now we, we are where we are and um, uh, I'm really curious to find out how it's going to go there's still obviously amazing amounts of question marks uh, surrounding uh, you know my my comeback for me personally and uh, I don't know what to expect uh, I know that the expectations my me are extremely low I got back to Switzerland I just thinking like this I can't, can't keep on playing with this knee you know it's just not, I'm not happy with it so um talked to the entire team spoke to doctors and uh, and did the operation thinking i was going to come back for Wimbledon but i had somehow the knee wasn't a fully i don't know happy and after a month or so I unfortunately had to do we came to a conclusion that unfortunately i have to do another one there is need some some more fixing in the knee some other things that must have happened even though i never really felt them happening during my rehab process and i also don't think i pushed it too hard to be quite honest in the beginning so then that's when i had to do my second knee operation on the same knee and uh, yeah, and then from then on, obviously, you know, crutches once, crutches twice, uh, muscles go down um, and you lose everything. And that's why it was a, a beginning from, from scratch again. And that's why also I think the, the, the road till today was, was long and slow, but um, I'm happy I made it to, to today. To be on crutches, not once, but twice. Talk to
0: me about what that's like for you, uh, starting from scratch, really.
1: I enjoyed the the challenge, you know, to be honest. Uh, I don't mind rehabbing. because I see the positive and the bright side of it—that uh, training is not so hard, and you don't go to the edge of things. Because the maybe, let's say that body part, let's say that knee, for instance, in my example, um, doesn't allow me to do more anyhow. And uh, with the pandemic and with the knee issues, anyway, it kept me home. I was happy after being 20 plus years on tour, just being home, you know, with the family, not having the stress of the next match. Uh, actually, it was quite quite enjoyable. Um, sure, I would have liked things to be different, to be on tour or at least um, be back uh, playing as quick as possible after the pandemic then. But, uh, you know, I followed a lot of the tennis matches and um, had a chance to to, to reconnect with my, my Swiss friends, uh, you know, that maybe I didn't get that much time from our family because of all the, the world tours that we, we went through for so many years. So um, there was also positives besides the, the lows, obviously, that uh, come with the, with the surgery.
0: Was there ever a nagging doubt, a nagging thought that perhaps you wouldn't come back?
1: You always do have doubts, you know, when, uh, when you have surgery, um, there's always uh, days that you feel better and worse. But I think overall, I'm a very positive person. I have a great team around myself, wonderful family. So I'm also very distracted. And, uh, you know, the, the idea was to be uh, fully fit again one day um, for life or for tennis. So um, equally important to me, actually life's a little bit more important to me. Uh, I wanna go skiing and play basketball and go playing ice hockey and do, play tennis in the future uh, with my children or exhibition matches, you name it. So there's, it's definitely worth it to go through all that pain, you know, but uh, um, the goal was, you know, this is not, I'm gonna go out. Uh, I'm not happy with my knee. We're gonna fix it and we're gonna come back. For me, there was no other um, story to it. and. Uh, rehab wasn't as hard as maybe people make it seem even though the people around me are very impressed how I go about it but for me it's uh, only but normal to be really really professional about it
0: you talk about getting fit not just for tennis but for life in general um being a father being a dad how much of a motivation was that too
1: No, it's just, uh, I mean, look, it kept my day busy as it was. Uh, I wanted to get off the crutches. Uh, I wanted to get back, uh, you know, so I could play tennis again, jogging again. The simplest thing, you know, jump over one hurdle, then maybe jump over two hurdles and then do the first sprint. These are all nice moments. And while I was doing that, I had a lot of time for other things, you know, for projects, uh, for the foundation, for things with my wife, my life, things to reorganise, reshuffle, figure things out at home that maybe I, I didn't have time for, that you always, uh, uh, you know, let somebody else take care of it, but now that you're home you can do it. And So my days were really, really busy and uh, no problem for me to go twice or uh, three times to the gym quickly to, do, to work on my knee, uh, it was actually a pleasure to, to, to quickly move around a little bit.
0: You're back out on tour now, uh, you're moving, you're hitting, physically how are you feeling?
1: good, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be back on tour. Uh, so I must be feeling good enough. Otherwise I wouldn't put myself in this position. So I'm uh, really curious to find out how it's going to go. Um, I really don't know myself yet. And my first goal is really from now all the way till Wimbledon, use this time the best I can to build up uh, step by step. Um, so I'm just going to really take it uh, one day at a time. Um, I have not, not had any setbacks uh, the last few uh, Month and that's been really positive for me, and that makes me believe that um, you know good good times are ahead. But uh, you know matches are different to practice, so uh, I still got a long way to go. Aside from the injuries that you've had to come back from, you've also been
0: in lockdown, like everyone else. Um, What's that been like for you?
1: Yeah, what was that experience like this? pandemic it's been uh, uh, something we also really had to get to know more about learn more but we learned quickly because it was front and center in the media every single day and still is so um, I'm happy I was uh, you know healthy throughout and a lot of my close friends of mine as well my parents too so I'm really thankful that we got through it uh, so far so good you know Um, having children and being a a parent uh, puts more pressure uh, on myself explaining to the children what's going on uh, making sure that they behave the appropriate way but trying to explain that to a six-year-old sometimes is not so easy um, but uh, we try our best you know like everybody else as well um, I try to live by a good example uh, you know like we all know the rules by now but uh, and we all hope it's going to go away soon so live sports going to see audiences again people can come into the stadium enjoy their time we as athletes can take advantage of the fact that people think it's, uh, it's safe and good now to come back to the tour and uh, be nice if that perfect storm came about again and we can see um, normal life sports. But it's gonna, probably gonna take some time in my opinion, but I'm not a doctor, so we'll see how it's gonna go. But um, I got through it okay, actually. I really can't complain. Switzerland, I thought, managed it pretty well and we didn't have the, the brutal hard lockdowns like some other uh, countries around the world. So uh, I think we can be lucky in Switzerland
0: just finally, what's the biggest one thing
1: that you take away from all of this? That, uh, I mean, that my life's intact, you know, I have a wonderful family, great friends uh, that picked me up, a great team. And um, we came through this together, you know, and that's going to be also the future, I think, for all of us, not just team, family, but also maybe more on a global scale. It's been so interesting to see the whole world together collectively go through this. It's not just like one pocket has had the virus uh, like we've seen in the past, maybe a country or a, a continent, but now it's really literally like an, the, the, on a global scale, we see masks, we see rules, lockdowns, isolations, all this stuff, and it's amazing to see how everybody handles it differently and uh, thinking of the other and I think picking each other up and supporting each other. and. Uh, Taking care of each other's well-being, I think, is going to be crucial moving forward because maybe you're doing fine, but maybe the other person across from you is not. So I think it's very important to be very understanding to the other people.
0: Before beating Roger Federer this week in what was one of his greatest victories, Pablo Andujar spoke with ATP Tennis Radio commentator Chris Bowers to reflect on his life in tennis, which continues at the very top level despite not one but five elbow operations. It's true that uh, I have
2: I have had a lot of issues after um, during my career with my elbow and coming back. Uh, it, it's a lot of sacrifice, but also of course um, a little bit lucky because when sometimes you don't know if you are going to come back. And in my case, I was lucky that I that I came back. Of course, I, I didn't lose my faith that I I was always trying to come back but mentally it's difficult because sometimes you you don't feel that you're going to, to come back and be competitive once again.
3: What allowed you to keep the faith? What kept you going in the lowest moments?
2: I think the fact of being a father and having a small child that during those days um, made me uh, a little bit give value to other things and that in a way um the pressure i had i didn't have it uh, after the
3: the the birth of my of my little boy but some people could say that it works the other way you are over 30 you obviously have spent all your life playing tennis that might have been a good time to stop when you had a son but but you still have the desire to go on well the thing is that i wanted to finish
2: my career in a good mood in a good way like saying okay i did everything i want i i tried to do to be competitive once again so I didn't want to to finish my career without trying and in that way I tried I tried I tried and finally I'm here so so you know you 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 never know what's going to happen but in my case uh,
3: at least I wanted to be sure I did everything the the right way and then you won the tournament in Marrakesh which was amazing your fourth tournament the first one since all the elbow problems did you ever feel at that stage maybe I have achieved what I need to to end well? You obviously had the desire to go on after Marrakesh. Right. Now, now the
2: thing is that I want to continue at least until my body says enough. Mm-hmm. But it's true that it's like um, a story and that's the end, no? But in 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 a way, I, I'm now I'm I can retire. I think. Um, being happy with myself, try I I tried to come back and then I came back so I'm happy. But now I'm trying to to make it last that's as long as possible and, and that's the way I try to to manage it and try to practice every day, to like give value to all the moments here in these kind of tournaments. And now the only thing that I think about is to to be healthy and that's the most important thing. Uh, you give value to those things not to be healthy because you when you're not he- healthy uh, you you
3: you're not happy but you talk about the sacrifices I mean yes you're healthy but you have to put so much everybody in the top 100 everybody in the top 500 put so much effort in make so many sacrifices and you had a second child and you're still putting the sacrifices in to be a top-level tennis player. Yeah, but in in that
2: case, having a child is not a sacrifice. I mean, the the, the one that sacrifices every day is my wife. That's the one who's taking care of most of the days of, of, of them. So for me, I take it in a way, in a positive way. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't go for the second child. And for me, it's been something that... Uh, it releases me, uh, as I told you before, the pressure, and and having a, a second a second child gives me more happiness and everything in the in in my career. Um, now I think is thanks to to those to those two kids that I have, no? Like like they give me that support that and and that those sacrifices that you have to make to, to be in the top hundred, as you said it's easier to, to make them.
3: So if there's one thing that you'd like to achieve before your body tells you this really is time to stop,
2: what would it be? There are so many things that I didn't achieve in tennis. So, there, I mean, in the results, maybe try to, to, to be a better player than I was before, no? in a, not only in the rankings, but also as a, as a tennis player. But uh, I don't play all, during all the year, uh, 100%, because sometimes I have to stop because of my body. So, so yeah, that's mostly the most important thing, to, to be a better player than I was before the, the surgery. On iTunes, Spotify,
1: TuneIn and atptour.com, this is the ATP
0: Tennis Radio podcast. At his best, Dominic Thiem is one of the major forces in tennis and certainly on a clay court. But after bowing out early in Lyon this week, the Austrian has said that he's going back to the drawing board to try and iron out some of the highs and lows. Short on confidence, his current form is certainly a long way from where it was when he won his maiden Grand Slam in New York last year and even from where it was when he came tantalisingly close months before that in the
4: final at the Australian Open. Tennis wise, it was almost a perfect tournament for me. What a performance from the Beating three top ten guys uh, Gael, Sasha, and Rafa.
0: Then
4: playing a great finals against Novak, losing 4 6 in the fifth set with, with having great chances. That was very, very difficult to to digest. That's his third major final now that he's lost. Because I was starting to doubt a little bit and uh, starting to imagine what happens or what I think about my career if, if I never do it after having this great chance now. That the pandemic came probably didn't help so much about it, and I had a lot of time to think. At one point, I, I forgot about the loss and started to think way more positive about it.
5: <music>
4: the decision came that U.S. Open gonna happen, so then I had a new goal to prepare for, and I said, "Yeah, I'm gonna travel to New York, gonna try my best there." and Maybe the, the big dream is coming through there and that's that's how it happened. It was a very, very difficult four weeks in New York. A huge change as for, for all players, I guess. I mean we were used to the packed stadium and then out of a sudden we we live the the bubble life we play in front of, of, of an empty stadium especially in New York it's pretty tough you
2: know
4: I had a terrible preparation tournament uh, Cincinnati the Masters 1000 lost uh, in, in two sets in the in the first round
6: I ain't the game, game I'm a jeppy, I'm
4: Until the start of the US Open, I, I would never expect it to stand there at the end and lift the trophy. I think everybody else declared me to, to be the favourite, but myself, I knew how, how good Sasha is, how difficult it is to, to play against him, so the, the pressure was huge. I really thought that this might be my final chance, I I really don't want to lose four major finals in a row and then that crazy match came up. It was a very, very tough one. Huge relief obviously in the beginning and uh, (laughs) that was the the feeling I had for for the first ten seconds and uh, it's the the biggest title I've ever had, the the biggest dream ever came true. Now, I mean I approach almost every tournament with with the belief and the goal to win the title and I guess that I still have to get used to that uh, pressure and everything because I needed uh, quite a long time, maybe longer time than than other guys, to reach that stage, to win a Grand Slam title, to be the favorite in, in many, many tournaments. I think my career can be compared to Stan's. Stand a man. So he was top ten with a pretty young age. I think same like me, 22 or 23. A little bit similar game with the one-handed backhand, pretty powerful, uh, physically demanding. But it still also took him quite a while to to make the big, big breakthrough with the first major. And uh, after he did that, he he had five amazing years where he was playing well in in all the big tournaments, win two more majors, and uh, that's my goal, that I can use the huge boost the US Open gave me. The biggest goal coming is probably the French Open because uh, it's it's a tournament I've had great, great results in the past. Obviously, always a big highlight of the year, but especially after winning the US Open, that's the next big dream, the next big goal. And uh, that's what I really work hard for to achieve it and hopefully go on for, for another great years.
0: From one Dominic to another, and from Austria to Germany, at the age of 26, Dominic Kupfer seems to have made a breakthrough. At least that is what Paul King put to him.
7: Yeah, obviously, um, it took me a while after college to like, grind through futures, qualities and futures, future main draws and challenger the same thing. I was in qualities for a while, and then know yeah, now was my f- fourth year on tour, I think. So yeah, we are starting to get a little more experience on the like big tour with big guys um playing the biggest tournaments there are and yeah it's exciting to see that yeah i can win matches at these levels too
6: what's been the change what's been the sort of main reason do you
7: think for this sort of upturn in in results recently um it's just experience i think it starts with the lower level tournaments you're not used to playing those guys and then you work your way up and you play better and better guys every week and you got to have a consistent level and you got to bring it every week if you want to Keep, with, keep up with those guys and yeah I'm starting to like put it together a little more and yeah it's hard work in practice and um, consistency in practice and then bringing it on the match court. As you say you, you came through that, that college system in the States so not
6: so many of the, the players that come through that route but, but how, how effective is that how good a sort of learning learning school was it for you?
7: Yeah for sure I mean I wasn't great in juniors I didn't play a lot I was doing a lot of different stuff didn't play ITF tournaments or junior tournaments Um, I was doing a lot of different sports and then obviously college helped me kind of get better and work my way up there and yeah I started to believe that I could win matches and obviously college you play a lot of matches that really helped my competitive drive Um, I was able to play and practice with a team every day which was really helpful for myself and yeah I I thought that was the best decision I could have done um, in order to give myself a chance on the pro tour and obviously it somehow worked out.
6: I mean, it was actually over in the States, wasn't it? One of your recent breakthrough tournaments, of course, at uh, the, the 2019 US Open. I mean, took us through that tournament back there. That was an incredible run for you.
7: Yeah, it was only my second um, Grand Slam qualies. I came through qualies and didn't have a lot of expectations, was playing well the weeks before, um, made a finals in Aptos at a challenger level, lost to Stevie Johnson, who was, I think at that time was ranked like 50 in the world. So it was a, it was a good match, good tournament, had a lot of confidence and then obviously, um, yeah, I started off well. First round of qualifiers, Ryan Harrison, Nicolas Mahu, and then I think I beat Uch- Uchiyama in the final round of qualifiers. Um, first time at Qualify for a Slam, um, it was obviously exciting. I was happy to be in the main draw, and then yeah, from there on, I was in a tunnel. I was really focused, and everything went my way. And yeah, I somehow fought through the first round. I think the first round was definitely the toughest one. Until I played Medvedev in the fourth round, where I was struggling physically after, I think, seven matches I played in, I don't know, ten days or whatever it was. And, yeah, it was just exciting to see that I could, like, do it at that level.
6: How, how tough is that for a player who, who isn't, obviously you, obviously, you need to be at the top of your game to be getting runs like that. How tough is it physically to, when you're not used to that intensity of so many matches in such a short space of time?
7: Yeah, it is. I mean, it gets more intense every week, the better the player you play the harder it is um, to find a way to win and those guys they never go away Um, they they battle the entire way whether it's two hours or three hours on court they're there every single point and i think that's the biggest difference between the challenger tour and the atp tour Um, there's so many guys that just are good at tennis but they somehow put it together for three hours in a row and that's what's what makes it difficult to get wins on this level and just pull through in the end.
6: Yeah, I mean, last year was obviously was a difficult uh, year for everybody in terms of uh, playing time, but one of the uh, comeback matches, of course, Rome last year was another incredible run. I just wanted to talk to you about that match against, against Novak Djokovic, took him to, to three sets. I mean, matches like that must give you so much confidence.
7: Yes, for sure. Um, I played great qualities already. I played, beat, I think, a few top 100 players in qualities and then um, battle my through battle my way through against Alex Seymour, 7-6 seven, seven, in the third, Gilles Seymour, 7-6 in the third, I think it was. Um there's a lot of tough matches. And then obviously Novak Djokovic, um, one of the greatest in our sport. Um, we, I had a tough time in the beginning, and then somehow found a way to, yeah, get get through it in the second set, and then yeah, obviously in the third set it didn't work my way. At the end it didn't go my way but I thought I played a great match and I took a lot of confidence with it, uh, from it and yeah, just from there on I started believing a little more that I could hang with those guys, even the top guys in the top 10.
6: And then moving up to this year, you had another great run in Acapulco. One thing I noticed when you're on court, you're very vocal with yourself. You're very sort of passionate. Don't always see that with some players. Is that something that that you sort of need on court to sort of spur yourself on?
7: Yeah, for sure. I mean, sometimes it goes the wrong way too. Sometimes I'm too vocal in the negative way, but I need the positivity. I need to be fired up in order to play my game. I'm a pretty physical player, I would say. I'm not like the smoothest guy on court, but I I come over fighting and I fight my way into matches and... Yeah, I just try to grind the guys down and uh, I definitely need the positivity and obviously with the positivity on court comes the negativity, but yeah, I've done a better job over the last few weeks and months to keep the negativity to its lowest and yeah, tr- try to be as positive as possible and definitely helps me get through those matches. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast,
1: available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and atptour.com.
0: Finally this week, we hit the doubles court. When New Zealander Marcus Daniel reached the Australian Open quarterfinals at the beginning of the year with partner Philip Oswalt, one couldn't help but wonder how he'd use the prize money. For years now, Daniel has been lobbying fellow pros to give a portion of their earnings up to worthy causes. So when the opportunity arose to speak with him, Chris Bowers started by asking where the philanthropic urge had come from.
5: You know, I don't think I have a, a very good answer for this. I mean, I, th- I think growing up in New Zealand and, and with the family that I grew up in, I always knew the value of giving back. Um, you know, I've always been passionate about the environment, having grown up out in the country. Uh, in saying that, for the first seven, eight years of my tennis career, I was just scrapping to try to make a living. So, you know, I didn't really feel like I was in a position where I could donate or, or give back financially. Uh, and then the tipping point came when uh, I transitioned solely into playing doubles and had a year where I actually ended up putting some money away in the bank at the end of the year. And when I felt that small measure of financial security, I, I got overwhelmed by a feeling of desire to give back, to do something to, to give back because tennis, you know, it, it we have to accept it is quite a self-absorbed, self-centered sport and necessarily so. But, uh, that's never sat perfectly with me. So when I felt like I had something to give back, I I felt really driven towards that. So, uh, yeah, I just started looking up how to give back best online and, uh, came across the effective altruism movement, which really made a huge amount of sense to me. And I've been donating since then. And, uh, yeah, have pledged a percentage of my income since I think 2016 and, and, grew that until uh, at the start of this year I pledged 10% for the rest of my life and it's been a really beautiful change for me. And then the next step uh, that I sort of arrived at last year was how can I bring as many people on this journey with me? Uh, Because it's great if one person donates or or pledges, but if I can just convince one other person to come along with me for that ride, I've essentially just doubled my own impact on, on the world. So. My idea is to try and bring as many people on board as possible to the idea of effective giving, giving to the most effective organizations in the world. And uh, I think sport is, is an amazing place to start. It's
3: understandable that somebody who might be in the world's top 20 in singles, and therefore is earning large sums of money, might have this kind of initiative. You've been ranked as high as 34 in doubles, still just inside the top 50 you're not going to be earning the kind of massive sums that will put you well ahead of uh, you know, middle managers of uh, small companies, are you?
5: Yeah, that's true. And, you know, the expenses of a tennis career are massive, uh, but the reality is uh, all of us who are playing the top events on the ATP tour are very well off from a global standard. I mean, it's, I've got a calculator on, on the website that's the how rich am I calculator and if you're earning anything over sort of $60,000 a year, you're basically in the top 1% of the world. So I think a lot of people have this misconception of I need to be mega wealthy, I need to be a Jeff Bezos or a Bill Gates to be able to give. But you know, for me, donating 10% of my own income, I don't feel a, a lessening of the quality of my life from that. And I really think that anyone on the tour can donate 2% and not feel a, an, a negative impact on their life at all. But the positive impact is huge. You know, if, if you pledge 2% of your income or, or greater, then you know that with every success that you have, you're also making the lives of, you know, hundreds or thousands of other people or animals better. And I just think that's so incredibly special. And it's been, yeah, it's, it's been a, a fundamental positive shift for me in my
3: career. You use the word effective in terms of effective giving, effective altruism. And I'm sure that strikes a chord with a lot of people who feel that they would love to do some good stuff, but worry that the money might not be effectively used. How do you work out that something is effectively
5: used? This, I think, is the most important part of what I'm trying to do with HIA. So you're absolutely right that in the charity world, there is a lot of murkiness. There's a lot of uh, mistrust about where money is spent if you donate. And I think it should be the exact opposite. I think nonprofits should be absolutely transparent about where they spend all their money and how much impact it's having at the bottom line. And this is what the Effective Altruism Movement is all about. It's all about finding the most transparent, the most cost effective charities in the world so that you can give donors as much confidence as possible that their dollar is going to the best place possible, that each dollar that they donate is not gonna be spent on the CEO buying a, a Porsche or you know, is not gonna be lost in a big bureaucratic system. Uh, so I don't make those judgments myself. I don't claim to be an expert in charity evaluation. I'm lucky that there are some incredibly stringent and expert charity evaluators already, already existing. That's the likes of Give well, Animal Charity Evaluators and Founders Pledge. I use their recommendations and their publicly available research into charities. And I just say, okay, you guys have been doing this expertly for a couple of decades. Uh, you've got these recommendation lists and I'm just going to take them and make them available to as, to as many people as I can.
3: And have you had the chance to see some of the benefits of the charitable giving that you yourself have done?
5: Yeah, this is the other really cool thing about effective altruism is – it gets so detailed and so analytical that, for example, based on 2020 stats, uh, if I donate uh, $10 to the Humane League, they can say with a reasonable amount of certainty that they're going to spare the lives of around 5,000 animals from factory farms. So it, it gets, you know, it gets to a place where you can say, okay, for each dollar donated to Against Malaria Foundation. A malaria mosquito net will be distributed and used by someone that will protect them from malaria for a few years, and and this is the the sort of thing, the sort of certainty that I think should just be compulsory or just the norm across charities that you know exactly what your money is being used for, and you know exactly the end result result that will happen because then you can really take ownership of the fact that okay, you know if I donated a thousand dollars this year, then I know that I have helped exactly this many people, exactly this many animals, or, uh, you know, removed exactly this amount of kilos of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. That's the sort of thing that I personally find extremely compelling. And that's the sort of thing also that has been bringing other athletes on board, is this certainty about the impact that they're actually having with their donations.
3: Now, people who follow the tennis circuit will know the name Marcus Daniel as a name that comes up in doubles results. Does that mean that when they see uh, Daniel and Oswald winning a third round at a Grand Slam and reaching the quarterfinals, that there is automatically an increase in money going to charity?
5: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's the beautiful thing. I mean, you know, uh, my, my partner Oz, he's he's pledged 2% minimum to, to donate to these effective organisations. I've pledged 10% minimum. And so, you know, by us making the quarterfinals this year uh, – I am going to absolutely screw up this mental arithmetic, but, you know, I think it is thousands of dollars towards uh, effective organizations at the end of the year. And that to me is just such a beautiful thing.
3: Just a word about, You're from New Zealand, a country that has a tremendous tennis tradition. Um, Some great names over the years, going back to Tony Wilding at the start of the 20th century, Chris Lewis, a Wimbledon finalist in the 1980s. A little bit short of top names now, there have been some impressive doubles performers. Where do you see the next New Zealand player coming from?
5: I think that's a really difficult question. Uh, So we, we have a great crop of doubles players at the moment. I mean, we've had... You know, three of us who are consistently playing Grand Slams uh, for the last, I don't know, five years or so. So that's something. And I think or I hope that uh, seeing Kiwis in Grand Slams is going to inspire another generation of, of tennis players. Uh, we were a little unlucky, I think, to lose Cameron Norrie um, some years back to to Great Britain. Because, um, I mean, he was he was New Zealand uh, born and bred. I think he, he yeah, uh, so... I don't know if we can claim him or not, um, but it is difficult when you're a country that's 24 hours flight away from Europe or, you know, 12, 18 hours flight away from America uh, to get the experience when you're growing up to get the benchmarking of, okay, this is the level. Like, this is where I actually need to be because, I mean, my experience growing up was I was one of the best juniors in the country and I didn't really have to put a huge amount of effort into it. You know, I I still played football for six months of the year until I was 14 or 15. Um, So I think that's a problem that's just extremely hard to solve because we can't move our country closer to Europe. Uh, So maybe it comes down to. Developing a federation that has the resources to uh, send teams of juniors over to Europe or over to the best places that they can benchmark, and then that's a chicken egg situation because you know where does a small federation like New Zealand get the money from? I don't know, but uh, yeah. Failing that, I, I think we're we're going to struggle a bit to produce players.
3: And if you think of you're playing with an Austrian on the tour, and New Zealand's top ranked doubles player Mike Venus is playing with an Australian. Um, are you like to team up for the Olympics?
5: Yeah, we're definitely hoping to. Uh, so we had, a, we had a great experience at Rio, uh, but we actually lost a heartbreaker in the first round. We had two match points and lost 8-6 in the third set breaker to uh, Posh Vasil Nesta. And, I mean, a day after that match, we were both hungry to get back to the Olympics and, and better that result. So we're really shooting for that. The Olympics is just huge in New Zealand, and Mike and I both have a burning desire to, to go deep.
3: And just back briefly to the, uh, the effective giving. If people want to find out more about what you're doing and the whole principle of effective altruism, what's the best website or websites for them to go to?
5: Sure. So you can find High Impact Athletes at highimpactathletes.org. Uh, you can search for high-impact athletes on all of the socials. Uh, and if you wanted to dive more into what effective altruism is or how you could use your own career to, to most effectively give to the world or make the biggest impact on the world, an incredible resource and website is 80,000hours.org. 80, That's 80,000, the number, and then hours.org. They, they were the website I first came across when I was looking into effective altruism and they really blew my mind.
3: Marcus
0: Daniel, I'm sure there will be plenty of people looking out for your results who've heard this interview. Thank you so much, Chris. I
5: enjoyed this. Thanks.
0: Our thanks to Marcus Daniel. Fascinating stuff. And indeed to all of our guests this week. Join us next week when Gigi Salmon and some of her friends on Radio Roland Garros will preview the French Open on-site in Paris. Remember, you'll also be able to listen to live commentary every day from the French Open on ATP Tennis Radio, courtesy of the official radio station of the tournament, Radio Roland Garros. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis.